here's a church where I think I'm pretty sure people enjoy coming to church. Yeah. They don't come to church because we're supposed to come to church. They want to come to church and enjoy coming to church. So, more power to you. Let me just mention a couple of things as I get into um, our discussion this afternoon. As I mentioned, I'm, it's sort of um, a reflection on the chapter, which is chapter 9 of the book, The Promise of Adventism. Just a little background to that. That chapter, as written, was meant to be the final chapter. And uh, you notice it's different from the others, if you know the book very well. The others all take up certain issues. This one does not. Uh, it was meant to be the last word, and the last word was Jesus. So uh, that was all written, and the book was ready to go about a year ago. I didn't have a publisher. Um, Pacific Press heard about the manuscript, asked to see it, and said this, the church needs this book, but, but we can't publish it. Which is interesting, isn't it? You know, what have we come to in, in this church, defense? What have we come to? You know, when I think of James White and Alan White and uh, Jane Andrews, and publishing was so big, and the, the review of the 19th century, how they debated back and forth, you know, sometimes pretty strong, you know, not terribly polite, actually. Very, very strong, agreeing and disagreeing. But, you know, that, that's a heritage, you know, of uh, believing that truth can stand investigation. Nothing to be afraid of, to actually look at all sides, to hear all arguments. That's one of the reasons why, one of the reasons, of course, Jesus is, is number one. Why I'm an Adventist, that heritage. It's precious. Let's not lose that heritage. So anyway, um, I had a manuscript, and um, strangely enough, in the Pacific Union, at the same time, they were thinking about starting their own publishing venture. And so, you know, they came together. It took a while to work it out. You know, they're not into publishing. They didn't know the treasurer's great people, didn't know how to, all the legalities, all the stuff involved. So it took several months. But eventually, they decided to go ahead. And I had my manuscript, and that's their first publication. Now they have two, this is number two, Oak and Acorn. It's a church publication. I determined uh, with my manuscript it would not be privately published. I determined I would not have Spectrum publish it, though I think they were interested, or Adventist Today. I think they're doing good work, by the way. I think we need them but I didn't want to go that way. And if, they, if it didn't get published, okay, leave it to the Lord. But, you know, it just came together, publishing and my manuscript, and here it is. I want to just mention two things that um, I don't mention in the book. 
And this only came to me after, sometime after it had come out. Uh, sort of background to the book. I gave you the immediate background, the general conference session. But looking back, there were two things that sort of prepared me to write the book. Um, one was some writing I did about three years ago, three or four years ago. Um, I've written a lot and I had in articles, you know, I've written more than a thousand articles and a lot of them talk about Jesus. But I'd never written a book about Jesus, just about Jesus. And uh, I determined to do that and it had to be the best I possibly could about Jesus. And so uh, eventually that came out and uh, it's published, uh, biblical research at the General Conference heard about it and said, we are interested to make that a textbook for our colleges around the world. Could we work with you? And I was not too sure, I didn't say yes immediately. But after a bit, I thought, well, yeah, if this can be a blessing to the world church, let me do that. So it worked out. They eventually published it in two volumes, because one volume would have been 400 or more pages. And it actually split well. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, first volume, his life. Second volume, his teachings and his passion, his death. So. But, you know, that, um, working on that book, ladies and gentlemen, for a couple of years, I really immersed myself in the Gospels. I didn't read much else. I read Desire of Ages, of course. Some other, but basically over and over through the Gospels. How would I put a book together? It is very hard to write a book about Jesus and to be true to the Gospels, try to follow the Gospels. Why? It's because there are four, and there are differences among them. The first three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are very similar. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. They tell a story of Jesus, basically in Galilee, and it's a short ministry, runs for about 18 months. But the Gospel of John, probably written some years later than the other three. It's so different. It's Galilee, but in Jerusalem and Judea, and Jesus goes up to the Passover several times. His ministry lasts at least three years, maybe three and a half years. And how to bring these two sources of evidence, which are the only ones we have, how to bring them together. So it was a challenging assignment. I was incredibly blessed by writing that book. I was incredibly blessed. But, um, you know, out of it came, for me, a new perspective. I can tell you, these days, I see all things and I evaluate all things in the church or out through the lens of the Gospels. Jesus his life, and his teachings. Now, the rest of the New Testament is important. My doctoral dissertation, the book of Hebrews, important. But Jesus is primary. 
And you know, after I finished and reflected some time later, I was sort of struck by some things. There are parts of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels that we never deal with. We don't. Now, that's interesting. We all know Matthew 24, the second coming. Matthew 23 is a long chapter. You ever hear a sermon on Matthew 23? Bet you didn't, okay? What is that about? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. The whole chapter. Why don't we ever talk about that? Maybe because it would make us uncomfortable. Because I said, this Jesus <laughs> makes you uncomfortable if you really read the Gospels and think about it. So, um, that was one thing. Things that Jesus said that we don't get into at all. We, we avoid. And the um, other thing was things that we talk a lot about that Jesus didn't. Which is interesting. Some of the big emphases that we have, you won't find in the gospel. This was startling to me, you know. And I think uh, my life has really been changed. My ministry has been changed, you know. And this is why, just at that time, we hear about the One Project, and we came to meet this illustrious gentleman sitting next to my lovely wife. It's Japheth, the great Japheth. What a guy. What an organizer. He invites us to come to the One Project and speak. And here are people coming together, a lot of them younger people, just about Jesus. People who never went said, what are you talking about? Two days? What are you talking about? Jesus. Believe me. You could spend more than two days talking about Jesus. Yeah. And so that's, so that's the first thing behind this book. So um, these days I see the church, I see all the issues through the lens of Jesus. And you heard it today, you know, the way Jesus related to women. It's there. You can't deny it. Luke 8, 1 to 3, he had women disciples. He discipled them. He trained them to carry on his work. Um, and other things he said. The second thing that impacted me and maybe prepared me to write uh, this book was that um, three years ago, well, first of all, let me say, I've been blessed with excellent health all my life. Okay, Hardly missed a day of work all my life. But three years ago, the wheels came off. It's like everything that could go wrong went wrong, you know. I used to boast, I'll never have a heart attack. Man, I've run 20 marathons. Uh, a heart rate is 42, you know. A heart attack, I'll never have a heart attack. <laughs> Go down to Australia visiting our relatives down there, and guess what? Preaching in church, have a heart attack. It, the physical... Probably was not as bad as the mental, you know. It's a blow to my ego, my self-image. Anyway, they kept us in hospital for a while, and eventually we got back to Loma Linda. They said, you need, you have a, a diseased heart. 
How could I have a diseased heart with, with all that running? Well, anyway, another story. So they didn't want us to fly, but they kept us a couple of weeks at last, cleared us. Got back to Loma Linda, quadruple bypass. Starting to walk again. Then complications, nauseated day and night. Lost 40 pounds weight. And uh, back in hospital, you know, with complications. Anyway, that was 2014. That was my Annus Horribilis, the horrible year. And um, that year, dear friends, and some of you have been there, I learned what it's like to walk along the edge. We look into the abyss and realize you may not be around much longer. There were days when I felt so rotten, I didn't want to get out of bed. I could hardly make it from the bedroom to my office and the, the lounge chair. Horrible year. The Lord brought me through that. And some of you have been there, you know, having been to the edge and looked over. Since then, I see things, you know, you see what is really important. These days, frankly, I don't care very much whether someone here or in Silver Spring or anywhere doesn't like what I write or say. I care, but it doesn't keep me awake. When I was editor, this may surprise you, I'm a thin-skinned person. <laughs> Bad to be an editor, okay? And as I said, we got some stinkers of letters at times. They hurt me. But these days, you know, if people don't like this book, okay. The only one that I'm really concerned about is who? Jesus. Am I doing what he wants me to do? That's where I'm coming from now, okay? I'm not out to offend anyone. I'm not a rebel. I'm not a critic. Someone said, was it you, David? It's a lover's quarrel with my church. I love this church. I have a lover's quarrel. Those two things really are the background of this book. I have been bolder in this book. Not that it's so bold. Bolder than I ever was at the review. Um, said things that I would have thought, but not have said then, okay? I hope they've been said in love. Anyway, that's a little background. Now, Sartre, I'd like us to focus for a while, and I want to hear from you also, about our church, the promise of Adventism. I didn't wrap up that first part. Chapter 9 was meant to be the last chapter. Why isn't it? Well, it was all finished. Then annual council came along last year, we had all this stuff going on about unity and um, punishing the unions. And um, uh, a prominent leader said to me, you've got to write another chapter. You've got to write a chapter on unity. I said, really? He said, yeah. So I did. That's the chapter 10. Logically, it should come before. Chapter 9 should be the last one. But topically... Because of the current nature of this question, it's number 10. Little background. I thought you might be interested. Okay. Um, what do we have to offer in this church? It's a very serious question. Some of the 
reasons we used to give for people to come and join our church. And uh, we used to use in our church to keep our young people in the church. They don't stand up very well. And uh, they're not working. You know, a lot of things are not working in the church. Okay? They're not. Let's be honest, they're not. Okay? We, our evangelism, we have big campaigns. Not many people come. Not many people join the church. And most of those who do join are gone within a year. True or false? It's true. Okay? Second thing, another elephant in the room we don't want to talk about. Uh, young people are gone. Largely, they've left the church. They're gone. And that troubles me enormously. It includes our own our own kids. What is going on in this church? It's not working. Two weeks ago, we were in um, Northern California, invited by the board of uh, La Sierra University, the president of the the university, asked us to join the the board for their annual retreat and uh, speak to them, have conversations based on this book. Know, with an education focus. And we did. And uh, Ray Tates, who some of you know, was with me. He sort of facilitated the, co- the conversation. We had a great time. Wonderful board they have there for La Sierra. But, you know, we started out by saying both of us, Ray, Ray's family, our family, our kids don't go to church. Well, the reaction, you know, being honest, the reaction from that board was so interesting. The people who came up to me later, whom I knew, who said, our kids are not even Christians anymore. The pain that was in that group. This is, you know, there are a couple of elephants in the room, and this is a big one, okay? So um, that's why this, this matter this afternoon is something I'm wrestling with, you know. What do we have to offer to the world? What do we have to offer so that our young people will be proud of this church and want to stay with it? I want to say, first of all, in this regard, that a lot of good things are happening in this church. We have problems, but a lot of good things are happening in this church. One of the best things that's happening is that this, this message, the Adventist message, produces wonderful people. Here you are. You're wonderful people. Really. Not flattering you. You are. I've met a lot of people, I've traveled a lot. There are some cranky Adventists. There's some crazy Adventists, okay? But a lot of really wonderful people. Really wonderful people. So it's interesting, isn't it? You know? Um, Adventists, there's something special about this Adventist church. We have so, there's a lot of similarities with other churches, evangelical churches. That is something special. I think we're a special church. 
Let me tell you a, a little story now about a young guy growing up sort of on the edge of the bush down uh, north of Sydney, little town called Budgevoy. It's on one of the lakes, Lake Macquarie. And uh, we know the family very well. Um, the father of the family, Ron, and I used to be best friends growing up in the town of Adelaide, which is down in the south, South Australia. Anyway, here's this uh, young fella, um, good, hard-working student, growing up there, you know, family, you know, not a wealthy family at all, but hard-working, good people. This young guy plays the French horn, he plays it very well. Guess what? Virginia Jean Rittenhouse and the New England Youth Ensemble comes on a tour of Australia. He gets to meet her and she gets to hear him. Long story short, she arranges a scholarship for him to go um, to Washington Adventist. And so after he's finished high school in Australia, and, uh, you know, top student, he goes on a scholarship to Washington Adventist. A boy from, you know, really a, not a remote place, but certainly not a city place at all. He works hard, the scholarship pays some. You know, he works long hours, works his way through, finishes up, straight-A student, okay, goes on and studies medicine, okay, and uh, then um, extended study, gets an MD and a PhD, which is a long program, and then another eight years of specialized study, and now just this year, has joined the faculty of the Mayo Institute. The Mayo Institute, okay, top of the line. It's an incredible story, it's a wonderful story. But, you know, I could tell you story after story like this. I could tell you stories from India, and I, I, I'd have cut this short, Nolan will give me the signal in a moment. <laughs> the time signal. But, you know, I think of one student, when I first went to Spicer College to teach, this was a nice young guy, but he always fell asleep in my class, which I didn't like, because no one fell asleep in my classes. Okay, but he did. He came from a village up in north of India, you know, from a village. Long story short, Spicer College, eventually America, ends up county health officer down there in Southern California, his own television program, and no longer sleeps. <laughs> they found he had a thyroid problem, which they corrected, see. Story after story after story, two things are common in these stories, success stories. The Adventist network, the world network, okay, that links people and opens opportunity, and then an Adventist school, a college, okay? There, 
place where people can work hard and if they can make the grade, they can be successful. I could tell you many other stories. So, but to me, this is, this is good stuff, dear friends. I don't know of any other church where you can find this sort of thing happening. Our institutions, I'm big on our institutions. I think our medical institutions in many ways have saved this church from completely going off the rails years ago. We are an apocalyptic church and that can lead to all sorts of crazy stuff, as you know. And we still have some people who are crazy on end time stuff. Okay. And medical institutions keep the church rooted where? Right in the soil of where the people are. So thank you, men and women, you know, involved in, in medicine and in dentistry, a number of you are dentists. Praise God for you. Thank you for what you have done and are doing. And, and our schools, likewise. Our schools have never had enough money. They're always broke, always struggling, always on the edge of being closed down. But, you know, and some have gone out of existence. But new ones are coming up. We live one mile away from Loma Linda, the medical center. And that, uh, here you have this amazing structure um, arising, you know. $1.5 billion. $1.5 billion. Okay. Um, the, um, the graphics are beautiful. I noticed um, on um, the television, Los Angeles television, Loma Linda is running ads, you know, on the key programs, MSNBC, Loma Linda ads, okay. Um, that will mean another huge leap forward for Loma Linda. The move from the white out to the farm, as they called it, years ago, 40 years ago, that led to a big advance. And this will lead to a correspondingly large advance. Adventists, okay, Adventists. So I can only say there's something about this Adventist movement. There is. There's something wonderful about it. At the very least, we can say the Lord has blessed us. The Lord is in it and still is in it, okay. Um, our health message, our teachings of the whole person, not just preaching, but being concerned about health of the body, health of the mind. You know. this, is, this is really, really needed. And all our disaster relief work. ADRA, ADRA is one of the biggest world agencies for disaster relief. One of the biggest. Okay. So, I could go on and on and on. Um, and you know, the ideals of service. Again, back to Loma Linda, if you don't mind, but that's where we are. You know, um, young men and women who forego a lucrative career <coughs> back in the States, go out to serve in some 
Bush Hospital, you know. Um, what was the name of that doctor, Nolene, in, um, with the Ebola epi epidemic, you know. Everyone, what's that? Yes, thank you. You know, everybody else went and they said, go back. And she stayed, stayed, you know. These are heroes. And young men and women, they've caught an idea of service. This is Adventism. It's Adventism at its best. Uh, I think the Sabbath is a great gift. We have seen it too long as a demand. It is a gift from a loving God. Okay. Uh, the fact that we have a global perspective, you know, we tend to think of the world. It's, it's, it's almost unique among us. And uh, so while, yeah, we have problems, we always have had, always will have, a lot of things are not what I'd like them to be. A lot of good is going on. And uh, that's why I say the promise of Adventism. Now, here's where I'm coming from. I want to spend as many days as the Lord gives me, as long as my marbles still with me, to help making the church more and more toward the ideal he has. And for me, that ideal starts and ends with Jesus. Okay. Starts and ends. His life, his ministry, his teaching. More and more like that. Things have not all gone to pot, you know. I think some things are not as bad, not as good as they used to be probably. Some things are way better than they used to be. The good old days weren't so good if you had a, a dark skin. They weren't. At Vanderbilt Uni, we worshipped at the first church, just a mile or so off campus. In that church, the, the pastor who was there just two years before we came, had told the congregation, if a black man comes to this church, the deacons will meet him at the door, tell him where to go. He's not welcome here. That was the Seventh-day Adventist church, the Adventist. Shocking truth. The general conference, the general conference cafeteria, was open only to whites. The general conference cafeteria if you're a leader at the GC and you happen to be black, you didn't eat here. So the good old days, the good old days, hey, not so great, not so great. So a number of areas, a number of other areas where we've improved, but we've got a long way to go. I think another area where we've improved a lot is that the message of grace of righteousness by faith has permeated this church far and wide. It is not everywhere. There's still a lot of legalism. I think it's way behind in developing countries, way behind where we are. But it is really the 1888 message. It is the gospel, you know, that Jesus does it all for us. And our part is simply to accept him and to worship him, and to follow him. 
but some of the old reasons that we used to use to bring people in and to keep them in really don't work. All that talk about the end of the world, you know, the latest headlines, is coming, is coming, better get ready. Really the fear motivation, okay? How long can you keep on saying that and retain credibility, okay? You know, how many years we've been saying that? So it really doesn't work. That should, doesn't work for our young people growing up in the church. The other thing, the Sabbath. Here's a strange thing in which the message of the gospel has sort of impacted the Sabbath. We now have come to understand that it is not our Sabbath keeping that will get us into heaven. You hear what I say? It used to be grace plus Sabbath keeping. We realize, no, it's only, only grace. Only grace. So, again, a fear motivation. You've got to keep the Sabbath because only Sabbath keepers are going to make it through. Remember that? Some of us are old enough to know that. It doesn't hold water anymore. See? And so some of the old reasons are pretty well kaput, at least here in North America. Okay, I've talked enough. I want to hear from you. Uh, what do you like about this church? Where are we going? And um, if you don't have enough questions, I have one I want to put to you. Okay. <laughs> Want to start with your questions? Oh, yeah. No, because oh, yeah, you go with your questions right. and their questions. All right. So uh, if you have a question and you want to come to the mic, you're welcome to come to the mic. If not, I've got uh, six million here. <laughs> so, all right, we'll start here. Let's try and cover a hundred thousand. Yeah, we'll we? try and cut down to thousands, right? Because we don't believe in millions. I remember that. All right, here we go. <laughs> um, Considering the ordination was historically instituted in a time when the Seventh-day Adventist Church uh, wanted to vet those who carried the Adventist message versus those who didn't, shouldn't ordination still, should ordination still be a method that we use uh, for men or women to maintain Adventist identity? Or might there be another way that ordination could be used, uh, that we could use today? In yeah. other words, could we use something else instead of ordination to yeah. vet? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's so interesting. You go back to the reformers. Martin Luther, you know, he'd come out, he had been a priest. He didn't want the Protestant church to have ordained ministers. He did not, because he didn't want us to go down the way of the Roman Catholic Church. He was virtually forced into this so that, remember, there were princely states, church and state were combined, so that the authorities, secular authorities, would know who is recognized as a minister. And so it was sort of reluctant. Calvin likewise, very reluctant. And uh, so ordination was introduced in our church for the same reason. Who is really uh, qualified, who is really a genuine representative of the church? We uh, adopted ordination because it was simply done. It's what the other churches did. Um, and today we are in this strange situation, you know, strange situation. Is that the end of that question? Or yeah, that is. That is. Yeah. yeah. 
It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here. And it was somewhere around 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, something like that. When the New Testament was written, it was a radical reinterpretation of what people were thinking in the Old Testament. They were expecting a king, you know, a descendant of David. They didn't know a God was coming to earth in human form. That was a radical change. I'm wondering, it seems to me like a similar, after another 2,000 years, radical change is in order and is already upon us. We don't Mm. know what it all is. But it's hard to make a radical change when people are used to another, a yeah. certain way of looking at it, what sort of guides can we, do you get from scripture that will help us make something as radical a change as happened in Jesus' oh, time? Oh, I wish I knew, brother. It's, uh, you know, I have felt, you know, I feel within me that much of the struggle that we see in the Adventist church today is that there's a, a birth taking place there's a new church struggling to be born. Mm. Okay? And so it's painful. And you women know how much better than we men do. The pain accompanying birth. And so there's conflict and uh, there's uncertainty. But, you know, again, remember I'm an optimist, but I'm also optimist because I believe that Jesus is Lord of the church and Lord of the mission, that he will not let his mission fail. The gospel will go to all the world. I believe he's given the Adventist church, the Adventist people, something for the world. I don't believe that we are the only ones. Hey, who do we think we are? It's a big God. He has thousands of agencies that he's using every day. But I think we have a place. We have uh, some good things to tell the world. Stuff that it really is timely. And, uh, but, you know, um, the question about, you know, how do we, what suggestions for radical change are, man, I don't know. The Lord has to bring it about, okay. Um, I want to be open to the Lord's leading when things change radically. I think things are going to change radically. I think this church is going to go through some deep waters. I think the church that emerges will be quite different, with the headquarters way smaller, and with the, with the real authority back in the local church where it began, where it should come back to. Uh, But how we get there, man, only the Lord can do this. He may do it, you know, in a way that we can all understand. Money. When the money runs out, or really runs low, there won't be the money for the big, and I think overblown structure that we now have. It's going to be painful to get from there to a downside structure. But I think it will happen. Hope I live to see it. 
Um, how do you think this controversy over whether the nation affects the General Conference view on same-sex marriage and gender issues? Say it again, Hal. How do you think this, view, this issue of ordination affects... Well, I get it. Well, uh, uh, some people want to put them together. I remember... Good night. I, I, I'm a dinosaur. I can go back a long way. I remember when these discussions were taking place in the 70s and the 80s. I was just coming into the general conference and into the review, you know. Um, and uh, some of the strong opponents of women's ordination made that link, saying that if we ordain women, next thing we'll be ordaining gays. Becky Oki, Sam Becky Oki, in his book made that argument. And Raymond Holmes also. You know, inevitable, this way, sort of, it's a slippery slope to the church is, is done for. Um, people have made that connection. I don't, I don't see that it, it holds logically, uh, nor does it hold historically. Let me tell you, um, there was a church that arose just about this, within a few years of, of the time we arose. This church, from the beginning, ordained women to the ministry. This church today is not known as a church where, you know, they're ordaining people from all gender backgrounds. Which church am I thinking of? The Salvation Army. From the beginning, um, what was the name of the founder? Um, Booth. Yeah, William and Catherine Booth. They were equal. And women were ordained from the beginning. Women can serve and have served as the general. That's the highest office in the church. Army, military terminology. Women, okay. What would you say at the Salvation Army? No. Has that church gone to pot? No. So it's a bogus argument. Mm. It really is. It's disproven by history. Why don't we have the laying on of hands ordination for everyone when they just graduate from seminary before they go out? In nursing, everyone who's graduated from nursing has a special dedication service. Yeah. And to be ordained, the person has many hoops to go through, mission service, etc., before they're ordained. So it's more of paid for performance than recognizing a calling of God, which is clearly unfair to equal pay for equal work. Uh, interesting. Of course, uh, some churches do ordain when you finish seminary. And um, as I said, in China, our women, elders, women, go to seminary are ordained at the end of that, okay, ordained. Um, I, I favor the, the waiting a while. You see, the calling to ministry is a tricky thing. And, you know, I taught seminary for years, and I taught religion in India, and I um, taught in, at college level, and some a bit here in the U.S. But, you know, I come across uh, guys who are totally sure they were called, right? totally sure. Problem was, 
those of us on the faculty <laughs> were not so sure about that. So, uh, and I can think of students um, who in my classes, who, uh, you know, in class I used to wonder what will happen when they get out. Well, good things didn't happen. Okay. They were convinced they had the calling. Their life and work did not demonstrate that. So I favor a, a testing time. Hey, uh, Bill, how does the average person fight back against this uh, misguided authority? I have no voice. I'm certainly not someone who will be listened to by anyone in a position of authority. Do I sit? Do I read books? Do I fume? Uh, any suggestions? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. It sounds, well, who'll read it? Listen, I told you this morning, they take the mail seriously. They take it. Even if they don't get it themselves, they'll have an assistant who reads it and will tell them, hey, you've got so many letters on this. And if they get five or six letters, they say, whoa, you know, the church is falling apart. I've got five or six letters, okay. Slightly exaggerating, but only slightly, okay. Right. Don't be silent, okay. You have a voice. You have power. If enough of us let our voice be heard, we can make a difference. We will make a difference. Um, Bill, how, how can we break the culture of fear for our leaders? Oh. You know, they, they, when they're in office, they are uh, quiet. When they're out of office, uh, they are louder. Uh, how, do we, uh, how do we help them when they're in office to be louder? Oh, yeah. That, uh, you, you caught my last <laughs> statement this morning. Yeah. That the highly placed guy, highly placed guy, man of integrity, who said, can you tell me, Bill, why these people who know what they know, how can they keep silent? I thought, wow. You know. I hope some of those people hear this comment because this came from a man who's very responsible, highly respected, came within a matter of a few votes of being elected general conference president. Not John Paulson, who was elected president. Okay. So, um, what's your question? How do, we, how, how, do we, how do we help them to have more courage to speak when they're in office? I hope they'll read the book. Okay. Um, be prepared to take a stand, even if it means losing their job. Okay. I was talking with someone very recently who is highly placed in the General Conference, whom I did not know before. We had a conversation with just a very small, tightly knit group. He made it clear he's prepared to lose his job, if need be, over this matter. So I just pray that there'll be others who'll stand up and be counted. Good night. I, man, it's easy for me to say, I'm retired. Easy to say, you know, lose, you may lose your job. Easy. Not easy, man, when you're, you know, getting close to retirement. It's tough, tough to take a stand that may mean that. You know, tough 
for you and your family, okay? But in the long run, our heritage is Martin Luther, whom Ellen White praised as a hero in her book, The Great Controversy. Here I stand, I can do no other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. That is our Adventist tradition, my friends. It is. We must individually be true to that and call our leaders to be true to that. They wanted to know uh, what happened to those 970 professors that handed in the credentials. Um, were they refused? Were, did they have their credentials returned to them? Were there any repercussions in their jobs? The, the, uh, uh, I, so far as I know, and I'm pretty sure, not one of them lost their job, okay? No one lost their jobs. <laughs> but the Committee on Credentials and Licenses, they must have had an interesting time when this request came up. <laughs> Never before in history, I'm sure, do ministers say, please remove, change our credentials. I'm sure they've never had that. I am told that the letter came back from the General Conference saying, your request cannot be considered. Hmm. This person here wants to know if Ted Wilson will uh, continue to alienate the conference that gives the most uh, tithe. Um, and if the church does that, will that uh, cause the GC to scale back? Yeah, what was the first part if? If Ted Wilson will continue to alienate the conference, I think they're referring to Southeast California Conference. Yeah. Um, I think they have a bit of tithe. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't want to get into the question of, of money and withholding. Um, but I'll tell you one thing. One thing, and I don't mind this going out, okay? I don't mind it going out to wherever it goes. And to whoever... We can learn from the black experience here in North America. What can we learn? They found that in order to get justice, it meant the handling of money and the way they handled money. This is shocking, but it's a fact. Um, some seven, eight years ago, <clears throat> the church uh, retirement policy for North America was being re refigured, okay? Uh, going over to a new system altogether. And um, as the discussions proceeded leading up to the change, the uh, African-American leaders there in the North American region made speeches about how their workers on average, live much uh, 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 shorter lives after retirement. How they do not have equity built up when they come to retirement. They made these speeches. No one listened. No one took them seriously. What happened? Suddenly, at the next annual council, the regional conferences came out with a full-blown plan, their own retirement scheme, which they have now. They have a separate retirement scheme. You're talking about 
quite a lot of money, dear friends, okay? A lot of money. And what could the... It's very interesting. What did the leaders in the North American Division and in the General Conference do? Did they say, we can't permit this, it's, it's outside of policy, this, it's impossible, you know, we've got to deal with these people? They swallowed hard and let it go. That's where we are. We are an interesting church, aren't we? When we talk about unity, already we have huge differences in our unity. A friend of mine at the General Conference who called me to say, thank you for this book, okay? And uh, church leads this book. He said, he's been um, a leader of the church for 30, 40 years. He's from overseas, he's traveled the world, still travels the world. He said, I can't think of any time in my 40-some years when the church has been absolutely united, okay? You go from one part of the world to another, they pick and choose which policies they're going to follow. It's true, it's true. Not surprisingly, we're a big church. Cultures vary so much place to place. So we have these variations, huge variations. And um, so is it such a big thing if some parts of the world say that for mission in our part of the Lord's work, we think women are needed, called of God? You know, we are not talking about a fundamental belief. We're not. We're not talking about anything that contradicts the Bible. We're talking about a policy. Policy is important, but it's not a fundamental belief. <laughs> it's not a text of the Bible. Okay? And we already have this huge number of variations around the world. Um, do you believe the 28 fundamental beliefs uh, should be used as a test of fellowship or a condition of holding office? And does everybody believe all 28 fundamental beliefs identically? And this is not a hypothetical question. No. I, I think... <laughs> meaning Boulder Church. <laughs> no, 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 that's what they said. Uh, I'm just reading it. As, I shoot the messenger. <laughs> I think the... The fundamental beliefs, by the way, um, with a, when it was 27, I and other professors from the seminary were involved in writing. You know, some new ones were introduced in 1980, and I, I can tell you who, but I won't, who, who wrote what, okay? Um, I did write the first draft of one of them. That's, that's another story. Then number 28, which came along later, I did write the first draft of that. Okay, so maybe I have a uh, tendency that way. But the fundamental beliefs are descriptive, not prescriptive. They describe what an Adventist believe, not what they have to believe. I think that's their purpose. When it's turned around to be the latter, it can be not good, <laughs> not good at all. Um, is there any conversation about holding current General Conference leadership accountable 
for withholding information in order to ostensibly preserve authority over our church values. Yeah, but how, how, how are they held accountable? That's what, you know, someone was wrestling with that this morning. An earlier question. How are they held accountable? The only accountability now is, is through the uh, election, you know, every five years at the GC session. And then, but that is, you know, this large nominating committee, a couple of hundred people, and there's a lot of internal politics goes on. So I don't think we have a good system of accountability in place. It's not there, okay? Maybe it needs to be put in place, but that would only be part of a, a major change, huge change. Thank you, yes. Spent your life as a communicator, Elder Johnson, and it seems to me two key things necessary always are communication and community yeah. uh, in any church and in this movement. Um, much of my life has been defined by events after Glacier View, the last big disagreement, dislocation of the church, fault on both sides, really. But uh, I'm sure you know many, many people. I know many friends, mentors, people who led me to Christ, who had left the church. And that yeah. fallout, serving three years as a pastor in this conference, I even saw that continuing to this day, some of the same arguments being made by people leaving. Um, as a result, it seems, sometimes we've had sort of a circle the wagons mentality, and maybe some of the uh, independent ministries that have kind of uh, run a lot of evangelism in North America have contributed, I think, to that. And sometimes the review seems to have become more of an in-house organ. And on the other hand, we have the independent Adventist press, but it, and they built a community, but it doesn't yeah. necessarily support the, the mission of, of the Adventist church. Yeah. So I guess my question is this, assuming that even God uses something terrible to happen, hopefully not as bad as a split, but certainly there'll be big dislocations to come, rough times to come. Um, are there things that you see that you could suggest as a communicator that maybe we need to think of doing that can be done alongside the institution to build bridges um, for even those people that the institution lets down? Is there something in terms of communications and community that could be built? Or are there people doing that now uh, you see alongside the church that, uh, that yeah. would help in whatever comes? Yeah. Excuse me for holding my hand, but I have that light right in my eyes, so <laughs> sure. I couldn't really Sorry. see you. Uh, as I understood your question, brother, it's basically dealing with communication. Communication and, and, and community building. Yeah. Uh, you know, the institution, institutions are always going to let us down. Yeah. Um, they're there to support the mission, but, but sometimes people think that the mission is the institution, and sometimes people are left along the wayside. How can we help, again, we've been given an incredible message and incredible truths. Yeah. How can we help build those, those bridges yeah. and, and communicate? And is well, that some very basic things that have to start off. We need to quit this being suspicious of one another. Suspicion destroys community. It is antithetical to Jesus, called to love one another. Um, division is of the devil, it's of the evil one. He's the accuser. He's the one who accuses the brethren. Okay. So now that's easily. How do you get people to stop being suspicious and tearing others down? Well, only by, you know, the Lord has to do that. 
That's why we need the, the wind of the Spirit to blow through this church. We need the Spirit like a gale to blow away a lot of junk. Okay. Suspicion and backbiting and lies and half-truths and innuendo and uh, labeling people. You know, I detest that. This is a safe person. That person is not a safe person. You know, it's, I detest that. There are good scholars in this church whom I know personally, good biblical scholars. They are not invited to be part of any major project of the church. You know, there's a new Adventist commentary coming out. They're not invited to be part of that. Why? They have the wrong label on them. Okay. This, to me, is an incredible waste of talent and ability. You know. How do we get past that? The smallness and the pettiness. Okay. I can't do it. Only the Lord can do it. There is a time to speak out, call sin by its right name, because I think it's sin, okay? When we separate, Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. It's not our task, okay? Give you an example. There at Loma Linda, a person I know happens to be a woman um, in the School of Religion came to my office when I had an office there. Um, and said, uh, you know, she, uh, they were putting on a, a, um, a uh, seminar in the area of psychology, and uh, she had been invited to present a paper, and then she got word, your name is off the list. And uh, she said, well, what happened, you know? Uh, she found out that this conference was being funded by an Adventist layperson. And he looked over the list, and she wasn't acceptable to him. Okay? And uh, she said, what can I do? I said, don't do nothing, okay? At the very least, the president of the university needs to know, hear about this. But I said, why don't you confront this man who thinks that you're not a trustworthy person to present. And she did. Later she got back to, him, to me and said, that this is what he told her. I've read your paper. It does not have enough biblical quotations. It's a psychology paper. Long story short, <laughs> she ended up giving the paper in that conference. You see what I'm saying here? This stuff where you label people, safe person, unsafe person, well, we hear, we hear, can't be sure about this guy, okay. Uh, one project, you know, the one project, classic example, you saw what I wrote maybe on the, uh, the online. All the junk, nonsense, untruths, and in my article, I said, will someone please tell me what is the problem with the one project? Someone tell me. I'm still waiting for someone to tell me. Still waiting. So, oh, I've gone all over the place on this. 
But we've got big problems, friends. We've got huge problems, which only the Lord can solve. Only the Lord. But there is a time to speak up, to confront people, okay? To call people out, you know, when they're spreading lies. Face them down. Don't be silent. Indeed. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for writing the book. I really enjoyed it. And at the end, your last chapter, you mentioned, and I believe, I can't remember, Dr. Sandra Roberts? Is it Dr. Sandra Roberts or? Yeah, Dr. Sandra Roberts, yeah. 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 That's the way we close, yeah. Right. And I just wondered if there was anything we can do uh, to help them recognize her and put her uh, in the yearbook. I was just flabbergasted, angry. Um, It it is wrong. She deserves a a public apology, if nothing else, but she needs to be in there. And I don't know if we write letters, if that would help. But it almost, I I don't know, like it almost feels like this general conference president really doesn't care what we say. It's like we're not Adventist if we don't believe the way he believes. You know, Sandra Roberts, Dr. Roberts, Pastor Roberts, is the president of the largest conference in this division, more than 70,000 members. Its tithe income is huge, okay? It's a major conference. So she was secretary of the conference, which did not call for ordination, and she was very efficient. When it came to constituency, and the president retired, previous president, overwhelming, I think it was 80% of the vote, affirmed her as president. The people wanted her. So what has happened? So it's gone, to, gone, gone down the tube. No, it hasn't, okay? Confidence financially is stronger than it's been in years, okay? Spirit of the workers is great. Um, and a very interesting um, side note, I just picked this up because uh, we were at this uh, last year uh, board, and she's on the board. I heard this from others. Uh, she recently went to Cuba. There was a um, fairly large group from Pacific Union went to Cuba, okay? And uh, she taught at the seminary, (laughs) taught ministers at the seminary. She preached, and the ministers all lined up (laughs) to have their photograph with their woman present. (laughs) There in Cuba, they affirmed her as a president. In Silver Spring, she doesn't exist. Her name is not there. President of the conference, blank. Oh, to me, it's outrageous. It's the, I'm not a swearing person. It is outrageous. Okay. <laughs> it's petty. It is petty, you know. How do you think the people in that conference feel? Okay. It's no wonder that Quite a few of them are talking about, you know, if this body doesn't recognize us, why should we recognize them with our, with our money? I don't advocate that. But I tell you, that is quite widespread. 
Thank you. Bill, um, uh, without using the term rebellion, so I didn't say it, uh, will it require firm opposition to the current authoritarian tendencies in order to avoid becoming an authoritarian hierarchy? What would that opposition look like uh, without holding tithe? Um, would your next book be one that describes the new Adventist church uh, that you're saying you're struggling to be born right now? What's this new, newer Adventism? What would it actually look like? Thank you, whoever you yeah, are. Yeah. This is, this is the title of my new opening book. to ask you my question. Okay. <laughs> Here's my question. Okay. So I wrote this book. I told you it's an incredible reaction to this book. And a couple of people uh, some time back said, you need to write a follow-up. You've described all the challenges and the problems. You need a follow-up. I said, no way, you know, that's not for me. I, just, I gave the analysis now. It's the part of the whole church. But then, last a week ago, Friday night, Nolene and I were sitting on the front row of the uh, Sunnyside Church in Portland, Oregon, as a, I'm about to speak for an ordination of a clergy person and their woman. <laughs> anyway, I'm sitting there and singing a hymn, and I, in my head comes another book. Two words, another book. And I knew another book. You know, you won't believe this. By the time I was in bed, I had the title of the book and the chapters. So I don't know whether it was uh, one of these, um, who knows, something I'd eaten. Uh, they call it inspiration, right? <laughs> it hasn't gone away, you know, so I might write another book. Uh, but here's the title, Authentic Adventism. It, that person, did he, they mentioned that. Just, Isn't that yeah, incredible? Yeah, yeah. Authentic Adventism. See, I'm extremely interested in the millennials. And what the millennials are looking for more than anything else is authenticity. They don't want all this baloney. They want real people. They want a real church. So, my question is, you know, your own opinion, your own thinking, your own judgment. What should be in that book if I write it? What would authentic Adventism look like? You don't have to have a fully developed answer. I'm just trying to get my thoughts together. What would authentic Adventism be like? Tell me. Help me. Give me some ideas. I've got the chapters, but I don't have the, the content yet. Yeah. When I was in high school, uh, I played music with a group of friends, and it drew some criticism to the point that I was not so sure that there was room in this church for me. Yeah. And then I read an editorial written in the review, and it gave me hope. And it gave me so much hope, it made such an impact on my life, that last year we were able to travel in Australia together for a little while, Bill. And there was a day when my son Anderson got out of the car, and he was barely able to walk. And you reached down and grabbed his hand and walked with him into the building. And I couldn't resist the opportunity to grab a photo of the two of you walking together. So I wanted to say thank you 
for the hope that you've, that so many people here today I know are here because of the hope that you've given in your writing. So thank you. My question for you is, what is it that gives you hope? Jesus, Jesus. I have, I don't mind this going out, I have the least confidence, I still have a lot of confidence in the leadership of this church. But it is at the lowest level it has ever been since I've been an employee of this church. But on the other hand, my confidence in Jesus, I think, has never been higher. I'm confident that he is Lord of the church, Lord of the mission, and he's going to bring it out. Okay. How? Can't tell you. When? Can't tell you. I do foresee some tempestuous times ahead. But Jesus will be there. And I'll even say this, something I would never have dreamed of thinking, let alone saying, not long ago. If, if it happens, and the church divides, let it be. Because Jesus will still be there and will work out his plan, even through the division. I'm so sorry to say that. You don't know how it hurts me to say that, but I believe it. And so, you know, I face the possibility of the nuclear option, where the leadership of the church tries to cut off the Columbia Union and the Pacific Union from their duly elected officers. I think it's crazy. I don't think it'll work. I think it is madness, frankly. It's the mildest term I can use, madness, okay? But if it should happen, by the way, they still have to do with Europe, still have to do with the South Pacific, those Aussies are tough characters. They're not going to lie down. Believe me, they're not going to lie down, be trampled over. Okay. Remember what this, the people fought for against the British. What was that slogan, don't trample on us? Remember, it was something like that. Don't trample on us, yeah. And, you know, they're not going to be trampled on. And, uh, yeah, my hope is in Jesus. Okay. And, um, man, you know, you heard the news, hardly like to look at the news anymore. Jesus, okay. The church, mixed, bad, but a lot of good, a lot of good to remember that. A lot of good in this church. Jesus, okay. No more, no more ideas coming. Give me ideas, please. Sure, I want to throw out three ideas on authentic Adventism. I could spend hours giving you thoughts I have on that, but three jumped in my mind when you said that. Yeah, please. I'm going to um, write. Mind? First of all, people that know me from Campion know I care about how church happens in terms of governance. Sometimes we call it process. Yeah. And our church does not exist for the purpose of process. We exist to be ministers of God, but process is important. Yeah. So just as you said at the beginning, 
you have a hard time with what happened in San Antonio because of the way it happened. Yeah. Authentic Adventism would do things right. Yeah. So that's number one. Number two, authentic Adventism will be true to the word. We will be people of the book still. And number three, we will care about people. We won't just care about people we're trying to bring in, but we'll care about each other within our church, our brothers and sisters and everybody, whether they are just like us, whether they're men or women, whether they're gay or lesbian, whether they're whoever, we'll care about everybody. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. You might see this blueprint one day. Thank you very much. This may be redundant, but I'm a lifetime Adventist over half a century now. And one of the things that historically has been almost synonymous with Adventism is that the end justifies the means. In his end, authentic Adventism, the end never justifies mm-hmm. the means. Good. Mm. Thank you very much. I, I think that the uh, overwhelming characteristic of authentic Adventism might be that they are loving people. Loving people? Yes, I feel yeah. like religion around the world takes a bad rap because too many religious people are not loving people. Yeah, yeah. And to me, authentic Adventism would display love not only for each other, but for the rest of mankind uh, more than it cares about doctrine. Yeah. Uh, we'd rather be loving than right. Yeah. Good. And uh, I, I, I really feel like that's not enough a part of our culture right this moment. Yeah. 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 Thank you very much. These great ideas. Um, there's more wisdom out there, I know. <laughs> you know, in chapter two of this book, I talk about the exclusive or whatever. You know, and I have a, I quote from an unnamed person. I quote almost her, it's a her, I didn't say it in the book. Yeah. Her, her email. And that email really got me thinking, I need to write a book, okay? The idea she came up with. How she is a bright young minister, gifted. Uh, She's the one who was ordained a week ago. But, um, uh, so now you know, her name is Cara Dale Johnson. And uh, recently married, and you'll know it's Johnson because it has two S's, not many like that. Her husband happened to trace his roots, found out he had Swedish roots, so he changed his name from one S to two S. So I said, at last, another Johnson who spells their name correctly. Mm. But, um, yeah. Um, ideas that came into me, you know, they, they just flowed into this book. And I think I've got some good ones here today. Yeah.
anymore. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's an interesting idea you brought up about authentic Adventism. I, I try to run my life by being authentic in all aspects, professionally, socially, uh, spiritually as well. Um, and when I think about authentic Adventism, um, experience came to mind for myself. Um, and because when we think about the history of our church starting in 1844, yeah. roughly 150 years or so, that's, that's a significant amount of time. Uh, but these institutions that us humans create, um, ultimately I think our goal is to have one that is everlasting. And ultimately God is probably the only one who has ever had an institution that will be everlasting, I would argue. And so uh, for me, my, my, the idea that came to mind was authentic Adventism would be informed by tradition, but not bound to tradition. Hey, say it, repeat that. Um, authentic Adventism for me right now, just off the top of my head, is informed by tradition, informed by, but not but bound by tradition. Oh, that, that's well put. Because we, we have a very rich history. Uh, we are a movement that is continuing to this day. Mm. And um, tradition can get in the way, and, and not, yeah. all tradition is not bad. Not, the, that's right. But the, when you forget why you have that tradition, and when, you, when it becomes just second nature to just and participate in a tradition, but it doesn't have any meaning to you anymore. Yeah. It's time to yeah. rethink that tradition, I think, and, or reinterpret yeah. it in a different light. Yeah. I like that. You. you know, our pioneers were very big on the idea that we're not a church, we're a movement. Meaning we're growing, we're learning new things, we're changing. Okay. Uh, we've lost that pretty well, haven't we? Or do we capture it? Yeah. These are, these are great ideas. Really great. Nolan will start tomorrow on that book. <laughs> <laughs> i got to tell you, let you in a secret. You know how I write, do my writing? You won't believe this. I swear it's true. Pen and paper. All my books, all my editorials in the review, handwritten on yellow pads. And she's the one who gets some in the computer, okay? She's the one. So behind all my books, well, since I left the review office, I had a very competent assistant there who did that work. But she's the one. She never gets the, the kudos, but she's the one. <laughs> I was going to just add two words to yeah. what... Ed Reifschneider already said about love, and I think they're very Adventist words, and he implied them, but I think they, they, they add, and they are very related to the spirit of prophecy, and that is not just love, but unconditional, disinterested oh, yeah. love. Yeah. Unconditional means we love not because of who you are. Disinterested means we love yeah. not because of what we get. Yeah. And he implied that, but I would add those two words to an authentic yeah, that's so good. Thank you. Bill, we have a, a few texts that have come in as well. Um, okay, some ideas? Yeah, some ideas. Good. Uh, so, not questions, uh, but ideas. They, they said that they would love to see um, your book include a chapter maybe on theology and science. And authentic Adventism for them would show how theology and science come together. That's all right, you can solve that. Um. You know, I, try, I, I put a chapter 
on science in the book. It was the toughest chapter to write because I really don't have job. I do have my first degree is in science. You may not know that. And I worked as a chemist um, for three years in R&D. Uh, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not really as, at all qualified. So I wrote that chapter with fear and trembling, but I did run it through Nolan's, by Nolan's brother, who's a very fine scientist, biochemist. And um, no, one of his articles now in journals has now been referenced more than a thousand times. You know what that means, if, if, you know. And he got special, some society said, you know, you're now a member of this. So he's a good scientist, he read it and, so that gave me some comfort when he was clear on it, yeah. Two words that are very dear to Adventism and should be part of authentic Adventism are present truth. Yeah. The problem is, is that present truth at the moment isn't very present. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. Some great one-liners here today. Uh, they also would like to see uh, authentic Adventism is uh, ethical. Which uh, one? Ad authentic Adventism as ethical. Ethical. Uh, they, would like a... to, they would like to see congruency between our behavior and beliefs. Mm. Ethical. Where are these coming in from? All over the world. Uh, authentic Adventism uh, would be a humble spirit. Yeah. A willingness to learn from others. You know what? Um, I'm going to have to start writing all these down. They're just flying in now. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I will, you can keep on sending them in and uh, we will, we will collate would them. Would you send We will on. collate them. You know something that um, Some of them are, bothers me yeah. not a bit, not a bit, a lot. And that is, um, talk about humble. You know, I'm so humble. And I don't think really humble people say I'm humble. Yeah. I feel so humble to accept this. Come on, come on. Be real, be authentic, right? Absolutely. There's so much of this junk we've got to clear away. The Lord wants us to clear away. You know, and uh, this one may cause a few blood, some blood pressure to rise, not here, but elsewhere. Um, the general concentration has so much talk about prayer. Let's stop and pray. On your knees, praying, praying, praying. Okay. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. I'm a strong believer in prayer and the Spirit. But I'm very wary of manipulative mm. prayer. Mm. You know what I mean? Okay. Manipulative prayer. That is such a... I think we're on very dangerous ground if we go that way. If we call people to prayer to try to influence a vote in a particular direction that we want. I think that is... We are on dangerous ground. Okay. We are playing games with the Holy Spirit. Who do we think we are? And you know, my last word, okay, 
I didn't say this in the earlier talk this morning on women and ordination. If God has called a person to serve, if God has called, who are we to say you cannot because our policy doesn't permit it? Who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? If God has called, think of that. Okay. Jesus didn't say many really harsh things, but he did in one case, and now I might be treading on thin ice. Check me out theologically. Check it out in the Gospels, Gospel of Mark in particular, where people were calling the work of Jesus the working of Beelzebub. Remember? And then he issued that strong, strong warning. Be careful. There's a sin that cannot be forgiven. Okay. Be very, very careful. Paul says, little statement, despise not prophesying. What is New Testament prophecy? It's not telling the future. It may include that, but basically it's carrying a message from God. That's prophecy. Okay. Paul says, don't despise it. God has given prophecy to women. We'd better not be careful about despising it. What do you say? Last comment, sir. As a movement, more than just a church, yeah. authentic Adventism appreciates what God is doing in the larger world outside yeah. of our community and appreciates truth wherever it is found. Oh, good. I like not that. Not just within the church. Thank you very much, yeah. I'm a, I'm a strong believer that uh, Jesus said to send his disciples out two by two. And I've uh, sat on the other side many times where trained pastors, um, both at seminary and when I worked at the conference and other levels. Um, and I was always very surprised and, and perplexed by the models that we've always adopted where we send pastors out one by one. Uh, it, it's, it's always struck me as kind of weird. Uh, but it could be because uh, we missed that text in the Bible um, and skipped it many times. I'm really blessed. I'm really blessed to be at a church here that actually believes in going out two by two. And so we have always tried at this church here to have more than one pastor. Uh, and uh, obviously the policies don't allow us to always have, by policy, uh, to be able to afford all those pastors that we want to be able to have here. And uh, this church here, lo locally here in Boulder, they really believe not only in pastors, but, uh, but any pastors called uh, irrespective of gender as well. Uh, and so we're blessed to have female pastors as well, and we're blessed to have Jessica actually be a pastor here at this church as well. So I'm going to ask Jessica to come here and to pray for Bill uh, and to pray for the close of today. Uh, I just want to let you know a story of how she actually became a pastor here. She, she was uh, just working for a few months only, uh, um, and we were really excited that she had come up here to, to do like a four-month you know, summer internship with us, and the church was really blessed with this, and then we had talked about the possibility of her returning uh, to come back here, and we didn't have the local funding to do this, so we made an appeal Sabbath morning and said, you know, do you think you guys could raise the money to be able to afford to have Jessica come and work here, but here's the thing, you know, you can't really ask somebody to come and work at the church for like 
one year and, and hope you're gonna have the offering to support her to be able to stay here longer. We need a, a pledge for the next 300 years. Uh, and so, uh, well, three years, we're prophetic. And, uh, and so the, uh, the church actually raised the money in about 33 minutes. Uh, by the time the service was done, we had all the pledges in for the wow. next three years. Uh, pledged and, and they have kept their word with it, which is beautiful to see because this local congregation believes that uh, if you're called to ministry, irrespective of agenda, uh, we will support it. Yeah. So we're honored. Close us out. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, we are so honored to be here together. We are so honored to be around people who care about you. And Jesus, we're so thankful for Bill and the courage that he has to say and put into writing the call you have laid on his heart. God, I know myself, I have felt like I might not have a place in the bigger church, but you have called me. And many of us may feel that we do not have a place in this church, but God, you have called us. So for those of us who feel like we don't have the space or the room to be the people you have called us to be in your home. Lord, I pray that today is a reminder that you have called us into constant relationship and discipleship with you. Mm. I pray that regardless of our gender, regardless of our age, regardless of our vocation or social standing, that Jesus, you remind us that we are your children, that you have called us and that you have blessed us and that we cannot go one day without remembering that we are yours. So Jesus, as we end this day, we end it in prayer, thanking you for who you are and the ways you have carried us and the spaces you have made for us in this church. Jesus, we pray that when you have called us, we do not say silent, Mm. that we speak up, that we act out, that we write, that we are called to be the people you have called us to be. And those are people that have hope in Jesus, in none but the name of Jesus, that no person, no place, no building holds our hearts, but that Jesus, you hold our hearts. So today we put our hope in you, knowing fully and knowing well that that is the safest and that is the best place that our hearts can be. Jesus, thank you for making room at the table for each and every one of us. We're glad to be here and we're thankful for all the sacrifices that you have made for us. Thank you for your life and thank you that you give us life more abundant. In your precious name, amen. Amen. Amen.